Yeah, life of excellence is really the way I see it is we're here to experience this for a reason. And I think it's to just have the the most profound experience we can have to mm -hmm. see how far we can take the experience. It's not that you, you're going to be in bliss and happiness every single day of your life and all of this. That's not living a life of excellence. If you're not experiencing the depths of sadness or the depths of pain, along with these highs of bliss and ecstasy, I just, I don't feel like that's a well-lived life. Welcome to the Stay Grounded Podcast. I'm your host, Raj Jana, founder of Liberate, and it's my mission to help you become the most grounded, loving, and authentic version of yourself that you can be. Each week, I interview experts in the fields of mindset, spirituality, and emotional well-being. My brilliant guests share their tools, stories, and unique perspectives to help you develop the skills you need to show up fully for the people and things that matter most in your life. Now let's dive in. Yo, yo, what's up, everyone? And welcome to this week's very special episode of Stay Grounded with my brother, dear friend, Mr. or Dr. Dan Stickler. So I could talk for hours about what I love about Dan, but specifically, I want to talk to his bio uh, to set the stage for this incredible conversation. So Dan Stickler is the co-founder and chief medical officer of the Apiron Center for Human Potential and is the visionary pioneer behind a systems-based precision lifestyle medicine model, a new paradigm that redefines medicine from the old symptoms-based disease model to one of limitless peak performance in all aspects of life. I mean, I'm hard-pressed to find somebody who is truly living at the edge of peripheral development, awakening, and truly actually leaning into um, squeezing every little drop out of life. I mean, Dan is one of the most um, seasoned consciousness explorers I know. And in this episode, we dive deep into what it means to live a life of excellence and how to prioritize personal growth in your life so that you can create more, um, you, you can create a, a container for excellence in your life. Um, the importance of doing shadow work and how to use consciousness expanding tools to discern between your personal truth, your intuitive truth, and the stories that your ego and fear and the mind plays to keep you safe. And we talk a lot about the hidden deficiencies that Dan has seen in nearly all of the successful people he's worked with and how you can learn from their paths to create a life of excellence and fulfillment for yourself. Um, Dan truly is one of my favorite human beings. We've had many conversations off the mic about stuff that we go deep into on this episode. We cover a lot of different topics. Sometimes we go on a little tangents, but all of it is in service of supporting you on your journey to become the most loving, whole, and grounded version of yourself that you can be. I hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, here is my dear friend, Dr. Dan Stickler. Dr. Dan, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Raj. Oh my gosh, I just, I'm so grateful. I was just talking to you earlier about how I've been waiting for the right moment to bring you on. <laughs> and uh, just the fact that it gets to be one of the first episodes for this new season of Stay Ground, it just makes my heart really happy. So perfect. I'm just stoked that we get to jam, brother. <laughs> Um, so I want to set the container. Okay. Uh, we've already introed you, so I'm not going to go into any of the details of our relationship and 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 what you do and who you are. Uh -huh. But I'd love to set the container for just a life well lived. 
and a life of excellence. Mm -hmm. And what role do you believe the, um, the, the excavation of the inner landscape, what role do you think that plays in a life well-lived or, or living a life of excellence? You know, it's hard to prioritize one over another. I mean, it's all part of the same process. You know, the consciousness is everything. And developing that uh, exceptional life experience, that that experience when, when the day comes and you're just like, okay, I really, really enjoyed that. You know, it's a... <sighs> It's an internal feeling, but it's the the integration with the everything. Mm -hmm. And looking at internal, I mean, internals generally the uh, I guess it's probably the middle realm of it. So we start off and we're like optimizing our physical stuff and you know good nutrition and good exercise and all this so that we keep the body in fit shape so that we can do the things we want to do. Uh, then people kind of go into the mind at that point. And, you know, I don't know if I want to call that internal, mm. but the mind is, I mean, it's our best friend and it's our worst critic. Mm. <laughs> so uh, a lot of people after they've, and, and this is for people who really are interested in understanding consciousness and understanding why are we here? You know, what's it all about? that becomes an existential crisis for a lot of people when they start delving into the mind versus the higher self or whatever you want to call it and the oneness of everything. I mean, it's a concept that's very difficult for most people to understand. So it does, it throws people into a little bit of an existential crisis. Um, after they kind of work through that, then some of them will progress into uh, much deeper realms. You know, once you can control that mind, and you see this with, with long-term meditators, uh, uh, Tibetan monks, and all of these people who have gotten to the point where there are no mind. The mind is not in the way anymore, and they have access to things that uh, others don't. And it may be a desire you have. It may not be. It's not a necessity in this life to, to achieve that. But for me, it's just the curiosity of it and, yeah. and the fascination with it. Uh, I mean, death isn't something I fear. I know there's a big unknown with it, but I think of some possibilities and I think that there's there's some greatness to be had at that point. Yeah. And what I what I I'd love for you to touch on like you have all these different realms, the body, the mind, and then the deeper sort of like connectedness to whatever that place is, how does that translate into the health of relationships? Yeah, so we actually do a lot of work with uh, conscious relationships. Uh, these are couples that uh, are either, you know, they're following the same path in their developmental stage of consciousness, or you may have disparities in that. You know, some somebody might be at a, a 5.0 or a 5.5 and their partner is at a 3.5 that's tough to navigate because you think in different ways with that you believe things a little bit differently yeah but we've seen a lot of couples that have been able to really work well with that and it's not disruptive but it really i mean it's beautiful when you see a, a couple that are traveling this this exploration of consciousness and they stay in the developmental stage with each other as they go 
When you say developmental stage, what are you referring to? Mm, yeah, I should have clarified that. Um, what I'm primarily referring to is Terry O'Fallon's work with Stages International. They have probably, in my opinion, they have the best way to really look at stages of consciousness. They, they've developed a scale that they, they use stems. So they just give you a couple words and they say complete the sentence. And based on the way that that is done, and they validated this uh, over many studies now, um, and they've what they've done is they've taken the um, the um, spiral dynamics, they've taken Ken Wilber's work, they've taken the Keegan work, um, and a couple others, and they've merged them into what they call the developmental stages of consciousness. So they talk about you know the the newborn through about 18 months is in stage one mm. and talks about their consciousness is all about taking in everything they they think they're one with everything they don't know any different than that they look at objects and they're not objects to them there's no name to them or anything like that so that's stage one consciousness um and then from you know 18 months to four years and then four to 12 you go through these different stages and most people will progress through these stages up until about uh, 3.0. And the majority of the population will kind of rest at that 3.0 stage. And I think that's referred to as the expert stage. These are people that um, they're in a, kind of a subtle state of consciousness. So they're not concrete anymore. So once you progress out of two, you're into the um, subtle stages. And then when you go two through four, you stay in the subtle stages. And when you hit five, you get into the metalware stage. And this is not many people that get to that point and uh, not many people want to get to that point, mm. but it's where you become aware of the awareness and you start to realize that there is no I. I guess what is the, and for somebody who might be listening, who's maybe early on their path, like what would be the benefit of getting to that stage? There's not. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, there's not a hierarchy to the stage. So, mm. you know, five is not any better than a 3.0 or anything like that. These are just the way that they have evolved, matured through these stages. And, you know, it goes all the way up to like seven. I mean, then there's a rare person that would ever achieve a seven, but they're usually the, what you would refer to as the Buddha that you know somebody who has just gotten into that that space and a lot of times it's hard to function when you're in that space yeah you know? so even when you're at these stages of five and six and seven you're you still have access to the the other stages so you can navigate between those in a situation you can say okay i need to be in that 4.5 stage for this yeah interaction and all. It, it's been really helpful i mean we use it in our medical practice to find out where our clients are and then if they're interested in like exploring um, these stages of progression, we'll work with them on it. Yeah. And what benefits have you shown or seen in your clients working through these stages of development? And how does that tie to medical outcomes or even an improvement in health symptoms? Well, what's interesting about it is people do get into existential crisis uh, as they progress through the stages because all of a sudden their worldview changes when they go to the next stage. And uh, it can it can be a, a real dilemma. Like I mean, going from a four point five to a five point zero, 
you're changing multiple stages. So going from a 4.0 to a 4.5 is a minor change. Can you give me an example of like what might be like a like a change so you can like ground? Because even I'm having a hard time understanding like where's somebody at when they're at a 4.0? Okay. And like what would that even mean to get to like a, a 4.5 or a 5? Yeah. So, you know, most of the, the 3 and 3.5 are more of the the experts. These are the people that are out there and they know they've uh, – got something to do and they learn it well and they kind of develop businesses and everything around what they're doing and they become the experts. When you get into uh, 4.0, 4.0 is more of a, you start to notice complexities. So it's no longer, you know, A plus B equals C. You have A, but you also have these other inputs to A, like 20 different inputs to A that are going to affect A. So this input way over here may have a profound effect on C. Mm. And you start seeing relationships between things. So as you get into the 4 and 4.5, it's not important the objects, but the relationships with everything. Mm. Your relationship with the world, your relationship with somebody else. And that's where it's it's a little... Uh, confusing when you first get into it and you're just like overwhelmed by it. Um, when you, the big jump, the mo most traumatic jump is going from 4.5 to 5.0, I think. And this is where suddenly you're aware of the fact that your awareness is there. <laughs> you're just like, Okay, looking at all of this as almost, I don't want to say an observer because that then puts another object in there, but you're observing awareness and it's the craziest thing. And people, when they go into that stage, if they're not around somebody who's been there before or understands it, they go a little bit crazy. I mean, they think they're losing their mind. It's a common thing that people will say, I thought I was crazy. But they'll, something doesn't fit for them. There's something wrong in the world. And when you start becoming that observer, you're just like, okay, this is really weird. And they, they blow up their lives though, frequently. They will quit their jobs. They'll sell everything they have. They'll move to a different city. They'll get divorces, all looking for why this is happening to them. And it's actually just a natural progression that's happening but there's not many people that can help them navigate that. And that when I found stages, I was in that state. I thought I was losing my mind. Um, I actually uh, told Micra, my partner, I said, there's something wrong because I didn't want to work. I didn't see a point in working. I was like, why do we work? Why do we even need money? It doesn't make any sense to me. Mm, I think I remember you in that phase. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it lasted like nine months until I found stages. And then somebody was like, oh, that's normal. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is incredible. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, it's almost like you just need to be like, like validated as you're going through these different stages of awakening. Yeah. I mean, it's confusing. You know, when yeah. you have a sudden change in worldview, um, it's really confusing, especially when most of the people around you don't share that worldview or don't understand when you start to try to describe it. So that's yeah. what makes it really difficult. Yeah. What role has, has like, okay, so what, what work for you is individual, like you're doing it on your own and what work for you is like done with others. Like, do you think it's like a, 
well, I feel like it's all done with others. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am not, am not of the belief that we are an individual I, even though in our relative reality that we're functioning in right now, it's not the ultimate reality. And I can put myself into that I state knowing it's not real. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, I want to talk a little bit about like how you even got started down this path. Like when did you realize that you were starting to have an awakening mm -hmm. and how did that, how did that translate? How did that shift your worldview? And what, what did the integration of that new awareness look like? Well, I can remember um, when I started into more complex complexity thinking, and that was probably around 2010, 2012. And I started seeing, oh, okay, this stuff isn't straightforward. There's all these relationships. You know, the most common example is the butterfly effect. You know, a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil and creates the typhoon in India uh, as a consequence of that. So minor changes, minor disruptions in a complex system can lead to unpredictable, massive disruptions at, other, at another point in the system. And that just, that fascinated me. So I really dove into the physics of it, uh, studying physics of consciousness, studying uh, uh, different forms of esoteric uh, practices. Uh, the one that I found most resonant with me was uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. Uh, I really love the philosophy. I, I love the teachings. I'm not a big dogmatic religious person though. So I'll take aspects of these different belief systems and philosophies and kind of create my own uh, world out of them. And, and so when, when, you, when you think about the word integration, mm -hmm. what does that mean to you? Integration is where you've, you've experienced something new, something that is not familiar with your system. And you're at a point where you either have to discard that, um, accept it and not understand it, or you can really dive deep and try to understand what it means to you. And that's, that's integration for me. Yeah. And what does your practice of integration look like as you're going through these different stages? Has it evolved for you or has it been? Oh, yeah. I mean, and each stage requires a different form of, um, of integration. Can you elaborate but, on that? Yeah. So like, like when a person goes from 4.5 to 5.0, their consciousness goes from a subtle awareness of consciousness or a subtle consciousness into a meta-aware consciousness where you suddenly step back. And I mean, that can freak people out. I mean, that's, a, that's not a normal thing that you've heard about or experienced before. And all of a sudden you're there and you're there all the time. And you're just like, okay, this is really uncomfortable. This is really a little weird. You know, that's why people think that they're losing their mind when they, when they drop into that. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the things I've just loved most about observing your path is your relational path too. Like mm -hmm. you and Micra have been like just mentors and guides for me in my own path of love. Mm -hmm. How has your relationship container also supported this awakening and this evolution for yourself? Mm -hmm. 
And, and I'd love to know the role that relationship has played inside of your collective awakening. Yeah. I mean, we feel like the, a, a partnered couple that are on the path together that are kind of helping each other, like one of us will get to the next stage and the other will help to get them over that. Like if, when you go into a stage, the, the, the partner who's at the prior stage is like, whoa, okay, this is really weird. And you're going, oh, this is really weird. And then you figure it out and then your partner all of a sudden starts going into that stage and they're experiencing the same existential crisis that, that you had, but you understand it now. And you're able to help them to navigate it and make that transition really easy and short. Mm. And that's that's been helpful. I mean, the you know, in Vajrayana Buddhism, we believe that we're all Shiva and Shakti. You know, we are gods already, and we can achieve enlightenment in this lifetime. Which, yeah, I'm not not about achieving enlightenment in this lifetime. It's not not really something I have a good comprehension of and or belief system in. I mean, I don't know what enlightenment is. So then, what do you define as a life of excellence? Mm. Yeah, life of excellence is really the way I see it is we're here to experience this for a reason. You know, consciousness has set this up. Why are we here? And I think it's to just have the the most profound experience we can have to mm. see how far we can take the experience. You know, the, uh, Nietzsche used to refer to the person of the Ubermensch. And the Ubermensch was the person who would take all the risks for all the potential high rewards, but they would also suffer the, the lowest lows. And they were okay with that because that's what it was all about. You know, it's not that you, you're going to be in bliss and happiness every single day of your life and all of this. That's not living a life of excellence. If you're not experiencing the depths of sadness or the depths of pain along with these highs of bliss and ecstasy, I just, I don't feel like that's a well-lived life. Yeah. Um, I mean, but there are people that they choose that. Uh, Nietzsche referred to them as the last man. And they were the people who chose the path of the, the greatest comfort and least pain. And so their, the dynamics of their life was in a little narrow spectrum. And they were good with that. And, and that's, like I said, there's no judgment on it. That's just the choice that people make. For me, I, I want to experience the highest highs and even the lowest lows. I mean, yeah, you do. I've had, <laughs> totally. I've had, you know, as a, as a child, I was always told boys, boys don't cry. Okay. So from the time I was eight years old, I don't think I had a tear and, and I would suppress all of this, this pain and sadness and distract myself from it. But what it did is it left this shadow in me and when i um when i became aware of it when the sadness would come instead of disrupting it i would ride it all the way down i would say how deep does this go let me feel it all and it was some of the most painful stuff i went through but as soon as you get through it you're just like oh my god that was like an ecstatic experience, yeah. even though your pain is in it. But when you come out of it, you're just like, wow, I had no idea I could, I could feel you're that. Cracked open to more of 
what I would say is that God feeling. Oh yeah. <laughs> like you're, yeah. you're feeling the depths of God, which is all of it. Yeah. The happiness, the sadness, the anger, the depths of despair. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I think that, you know, on that note, there's just so much to be said about living a full spectrum life. Yeah. Right. Like, cause I think even if I think about a life of excellence, do you think a life of excellence is void of suffering or do you think suffering is a, uh, well, I guess, do you think suffering is necessary in this experience? I think it enhances the experience. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of the, the Eastern uh, traditions are all about, you know, the samsara, the constant suffering and, um, they're about the yin yang you can't have the highs without experiencing the lows you won't appreciate them but i think we're we have the ability to have these highs and lows for a reason and i think we're here to explore every piece of it yeah what um what role has meaning making played in your in your journey Mm -hmm. and how useful do you think making meaning actually is versus just accepting something as it is um yeah meaning making is a double-edged sword i think um you can use the meaning making in the form of logic um but when you realize that we don't experience reality the way we think we do or reality isn't the way we think it it is uh you realize the uncertainty of everything i mean and this is part of complexity in complexity thinking, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. The mind does not like uncertainty. The mind will fight uncertainty with everything it's got. The ego does not want to be uncertain about anything. And so it will create stories. I mean, we know it actually will create changes in what we see. I mean, this has been some of the work with uh, Donald Hoffman looking at you know, we will actually create something in our visual field that isn't actually there because we expect it to be there. Mm. And the brain is always a predictive model. So it's always predicting what it should be seeing or should be doing and responding to or how it should feel. And when you get into complexity, you, you realize that, you know, that uncertainty is ubiquitous. We can't be certain about anything. I mean, there's certain things in the relative reality we can say, oh, okay. You know, this is X based on these experiments in physics and whatever. But even that, I mean, you lose it when you go from uh, Newtonian physics into quantum. Everything falls apart. You know, all the laws of Newtonian physics all of a sudden become moot at that point. What is the antidote to really soothing the attachments that the mind has? Uh, Well, that's one thing is giving up all attachments. If you're attached to anything, the mind is going to grab hold of it and kind of limit you. What if it's something that you care really, like love? Just yeah. say it's a partner or someone that you feel like you want to spend the rest of your life with. And like, like how do you let go of attachments that, that, yeah. That was one of the hardest ones for both Micra and I. Um, Micra was able to get through it first. And, uh, I mean, she was experiencing a, a crisis of, oh my God, I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose myself. I don't want to disappear. And I went through it a little bit later than that. 
but it was because of our attachment to it. My attachment to her, my attachment to my children. And when I basically gave up that attachment and said, you know what, it's okay. You know, we, we love each other dearly, as you know. Um, I mean, we are together 24 seven, maybe three or four hours a week. We're more than 50 feet apart because we work together. We cook together. We do, I mean, we just do everything together because she's my best friend and I love spending the time with her and she loves spending the time with me. But I also realized there's impermanence mm. to this and I've gotten comfortable with that impermanence and that's okay. Um, because I still think there's, there's a, a big plan to everything and I, I can't imagine consciousness wanting to destroy something that that's so special but you know for around for eternities and eternities then yeah you want some variety to to come up and new experiences and something just to really keep that that learning going i think what's really beautiful what you just said is like if we're if we're around for eternity and eternity i think a lot of my suffering comes from being attached to a timeline oh, exactly yeah being attached to it, having to be at this time in this way. And my practice is letting go of that timeline. And mm -hmm. even what you just mentioned is like, it's, it's, it's harder to prescribe to because it's like, mm -hmm. like, what if I don't come back as Raj? What if I come back as something different? And it's like not, I can't actually have this experience again. Mm -hmm. And then I get lost in that little rabbit hole. Yeah. But they're all just rabbit holes. They are. Yeah, it's just the, the mind wanting to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. What is your relationship to your heart? Like, how do you, like, when you, we speak about the mind, but like, what do you think the heart is in a lot of ways? Like, I mean, the heart to me is representation, just because this is where we feel love and we feel just comfort and, and all of this. So the heart's a representation, uh, just as the brain is a representation of the mind. Um, I don't think there is anything special about either one of them, mm. except in the, the meaning we give to them. Um, I mean, it's interesting to think about though, because we can replace every organ in our body and still be who we are in this relative reality, except the brain. Can't replace the brain and become the same person in the relative reality. Yeah. So what do you think the soul is? Um, <laughs> Wow, that's that's a question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, and and anything is going to be speculation. Um, I just think consciousness is ubiquitous in everything, and I think we are all we're all these these agents of consciousness, just split off agents of consciousness, and we are defined by our relationship with everything else. My relationship with you, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with this table, with the air that I'm breathing. It's all what defines us in this relative reality. So then when you think about like a grander design for your life, right? Like, what do you think? I guess let me, I have a question about destiny just in general. purpose purpose right so like when we think about what we're here to do how much of it do you think is 
you're doing versus something that is a higher power and how do you distinguish between your wants needs and desires versus something that's bigger than you mm -hmm. um it's just a complete uncertainty and i'm comfortable with that but that said um you know, I think the purpose is the experience. I, I just, I, everybody wants to have this purpose and purpose gives life meaning, but so is really just, you know, taking the horns of this experience and just going, going full bore saying, what can I achieve here? What can I do? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's always, I mean, with all of the Eastern religions, it's, it's about really helping humanity, helping the fellow man. And I don't know if that's a, a purpose or just an aspect that really helps to elevate the experience. And I think that's primarily what, what I see it as. Um, but you think about it and you're like, okay, well, my purpose is to do X, Y, and Z. Well, if you believe that everybody goes back to source or um, whatever you want to call it, then what difference does it make? I mean, you can do all this great stuff here and then you're going to go back to, to this beautiful place, this consciousness, you're going to merge back in with it. It's like you're contributing to something like the contribution is really interesting. Like when you're alive, like I keep trying to think about the impact I might be making as a, as a being. And like, I can't, it's impossible to, well, why would that be important? Right. Well, that's my, yeah, it's like, it's, it's just not important in, yeah. in, in any sense of uh, there's, I mean, there's the only yeah. thing that's important to is the ego so that the ego can say, wow, I did this and, and I have succeeded in, in being on this earth. What is a healthy use or utility of the ego? Uh, it helps us to function here. I mean, you know, if, if nobody defined themselves as an I or a self, where would we be? That's an interesting question, though, because, you know, you look back in, in evolution and the first humans, the, what they think based on what they see in these primitive tribes is they didn't see themselves as an eye. They saw them, the community and all of, the, all of nature as just one piece and they were just interacting with it, uh, or I can't even say they, because they didn't see themselves as a they. And through evolution, we've, we've gradually contracted down to this I, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, specialization, you know, and you have your general practice medical doctor who is a broad spectrum knowledge and can look at things and how they interact with each other. And then the specialists, they come down to this narrow field of knowledge, even though it's a very deep field or deep knowledge that they have in that field, but they don't see relationships anymore. And this is John Gepser uh, was a, um, he was a philosopher and psychologist that um, uh, he was German and he was in the post-World War II era. And he referred to this as the development of the, basically the hypertrophic eye. So the eye becomes everything. It's all about me. It's all about this, this eye, this is who I am. And when you think about it, I mean, you know, who is the eye of Raj? 
I mean, tell me something that's permanent about Raj that could always be identified as Raj. I don't know about permanent. No, an object has to have permanence. Otherwise, it's not an object. Well, I keep thinking of qualities of Raj, but that's... Right. And did Raj have that same quality 10 years ago? Did Raj have that same quality 100 years ago when you were just a bunch of atoms floating around? Hmm, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, everything's empty when you start looking at it. And we create a reality around it. And it's all, the reality is all based on our relationship with it. You know, if I, if I have a, a water bottle here and I say, what is this used for? You know, what is it called? What's it made of? Um, I've, I've created that object and we've co-created it because we are in consensus reality with it. You know, a dog sees this. That's not a bottle. It's not something to drink out of. You know, it's it's a chew toy. Yeah. And so everything is created by us. And that's just the relative reality we're in. I mean, you can go crazy trying to make sense of it, but not worth it. Is everything, if everything is created by us, do you think our challenges and circumstances are also created by us? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just these, um, these challenges and circumstances are all about relationships in some way. Yeah. You can look at, you know, just we're sitting here in this room. We are these agents of consciousness. I'm interacting with the floor, with the chair, with the clothes that I'm wearing. I'm interacting with you. I'm interacting with the camera guy. You know, it's uh, it's crazy to start thinking about what defines us in this moment. Uh, I know you as Raj. Well, why do I know you as Raj? Because I, I have familiarity with you. We have a consensus reality that says, oh, this is Raj. This object in, or this agent in front of me is Raj. And how do I relate to it? And we define ourselves by those relationships. I mean, throughout life, we accumulate a construct of self. You know, oh, you're this, oh, you're a father now. Oh, you're also a son. Uh, you're also a podcaster. You know, all these identities that we start stacking on the layers to build up that ego of who the I is. I'd love to talk about the I, but from the lens of the shadow as well. Because mm. we're, we're accumulating all of this these identities that are known, but we're also accumulating all of these aspects of self that are unknown to us. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate and unlayer like what's true from what's not true? Like how do you actually calibrate to truth when there's so much that you don't even know? You, know, you have to be uncomfortable with not understanding or knowing truth, number one. Uh, you know the relative truth of what we're doing interacting here and how we are to interact. But um, I mean, shadow work is a big deal. I mean, and that's part of moving through developmental stages of consciousness. I mean, there's certain aspects of, of the consciousness that has to be resolved in each stage. 
Can you just describe what shadow work is from your lens? Yeah, so I used to just cringe at the word shadow work. I thought, oh, I, I'm not going to do all this trauma and, and all this, this crap that's just ridiculous. Um, but then I realized shadow is just anything hidden from our consciousness, something that we are not in awareness of. And so it can be good shadow, it can be bad shadow. And the term shadow, people always associate it with a negative component to it. But that shadow can, can really hold us back. You know, I had a great childhood, so I didn't have any trauma in childhood. So I thought, oh, you know, this, all this trauma crap is ridiculous. Because um, people will say, oh, you've got trauma. And I'm like, no, I don't. Um, but then you start realizing things. And in doing shadow work, one of the biggest things is what, what's something that irritates you? Mm, yeah. You know, why are you irritated by that? And it's usually because you have an unresolved process that's there that you didn't recognize. I can remember I was, um, first time I really paid attention to this, I was flying back on a plane from Costa Rica and we were getting off the plane in Houston and, and this guy from back in the plane, he stood up and he like was barreling down the aisle so he he could get off and he's got he's got his ear ear pods in he's texting on the phone he's dragging the bag and hitting everybody as he goes total unawareness i was just like oh, can you believe that guy and then micro goes hmm do you have some shadow around that oh man <laughs> like, i don't have shadow around that. he's just irritating and that's all and she goes you might want to look at that. And so I, we went to the lounge and I'm just like, okay, what, what would that be about? And I realized, I mean, I still have those times when I think, oh, well, I'm really important. I'm, you know, I have to get off this plane because I have to get somewhere or, you know, these people are too slow and I just need to do this. And so you start looking at, you know, where that came from in your developmental stage of consciousness. Um, we were talking about at our retreat this weekend, um, we were bringing up these, these different shadows and, and how we work with them. And uh, for me, there were, there were a couple that were forefront for me. And one of them was just judgment in general. Yeah. You know, um, why am I so judgmental of people? You know, there's obviously something to this and so i am digging into it and i'm seeing this this gavel and i'm smelling cigar smoke when i'm trying to identify this well my dad was a lawyer and he smoked cigars and i was like okay let's let's look at this and one of the things uh, my dad was you know like most lawyers are they're very cynical about things you know oh you know it's there's no proof it doesn't exist and um they're always looking for the flaw in the argument. Mm. You know, the best lawyers can find the flaws in arguments, but it, that also translates into life. So they look for flaws in everything. You know, walk out in the sun and one person goes, wow, what a beautiful day. And the lawyer will go, ah, yeah, but it's so hot. You know, they're looking for that. And I think a lot of it was, uh, and I don't know if I learned this from my dad, it felt like it, but there was a putting down of, of people that, 
you know, oh, they're not very smart. Uh, you know, you don't want to hang out with them. They're not good kids. Um, and so I took that in and I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm, modeled more, it. I'm more important than them. So every time I would judge somebody, I would say, hmm, okay, I'm better than them. I don't have that issue. And I think it was a, a way, because all shadow has a good intention behind it. And for me, I'm looking at that good intention and I'm going, you know what? I, I don't think I had the confidence that I thought I had. And this was something that was helping me build confidence. I have a question just like, what I'm really admiring is the, the willingness you have to actually like let your ego it's almost like there's a like you've you've and I think that's a skill you've developed. I don't know yeah, if it's of course like, it right, is. right. Well, that's my I mean, and like because like so. Can you speak to the process of developing that skill of having the willingness to either confront the ego or have a conversation with the ego or like because it? I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. They don't actually either have that muscle built, so then they just let the ego win. Yeah, and so it's yeah. I mean, let's start with the story of my life. You know, I. Um, I go to uh, medical school, you know, and I'm like, oh, I've made it, you know, I'm in medical school now. And then after medical school, I chose the track to be a general and vascular surgeon. I'm like, yeah, you know, and, and we had this, this whole bravado of we're better than everybody else. We're better than the general practitioners. They don't have to work as hard as we do. You know, they don't take the risks that we do, all of this. So the system actually builds that ego up. Mm for people. Um, I also had to suppress empathy. I realized, you know, I just I was like not ep empathetic. I didn't understand why would I want to feel what you felt? And as a surgeon, you know, when you're cutting on somebody, you, you definitely don't want to have too much empathy there. You've got to be focused and, and do this stuff. Um, but then that became a part of who I was in all aspects of life, just like the lawyer who looks for the, the negative things. I just didn't have empathy. Um, and then, you know, I had, I'd gone to Peru and done some ayahuasca and I'd done some huachuma. Um, and those are the things that started to get me questioning what I was doing. Mm. You know, a lot of people will tell you, you know, they, oh, I had this awakening with this plant medicine and all of this. I think for me, it's just opening awareness to these things. And what I realized is that almost all the emotions that I possessed were intellectualized. So um, what does love feel like? And I'm like, oh, well, it's when two people act like this and they do this and, and the person goes, no, what does it feel like? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And um, with some of the plant medicine work, it came online rapidly for me. I mean, all of a sudden I started feeling everything mm. i was like okay this is really weird i mean when yeah. i felt love for the first time i thought i was gonna die i was like what is this i want more of this and but i never felt it that way before um and the same thing happened with empathy i mean i had a watch ceremony and i'm just bawling my eyes i mean it's the first time i cried since eight years old and I am weeping and I'm in this, this session and, you know, we have a professional MMA fighter in the group with us. There's like eight of us there and we're all crying. I'm like, 
okay, this is really weird. These are some really stable, macho guys, and we're bawling like little kids. And it was like every bit of empathy I had suppressed in my life all of a sudden was dumped on me in one moment. Mm. And it was so painful. I mean, I was hurting so bad. I was so just in pain and agony from it. And then when it was over, I was just like, oh, wow, that felt really good. And, and suddenly at that point, I started having empathy for people. You know, I had gone from this arrogant atheist to all of a sudden this, I don't know what, you know, it wasn't Dan anymore. I was like, okay, who is this, this new construct that's, that's all of a sudden come online? Almost sounds like you got to a place where you felt the benefit enough times to now when you're in that that fork in the road of discomfort or go to ego mm -hmm. you just lean into the discomfort because you know what's coming on the other side yeah i mean it was you know no longer avoiding things yeah you know face them and go full bore into it uh, like i said that time that i just felt the saddest i had ever felt uh, was in an interaction with my wife and i had said something and it wasn't anything I had even intended. You know, I was referring to something else and she took it in this way that just hurt her so badly. And I just, I was like, I just wanted to be the samurai and grab my sword and, and put it in my belly. I mean, it was so painful. And I, I laid there and I just bawled for hours over that. And I was like, whew. It got, it got to the point where it was, it was okay. And I could talk to her about it. Yeah. But I had to get through that in order to get that. I could have just gone, you know, oh, just get over it. I didn't mean it that way. It's not that important. You don't need to react that way. But it wasn't. I felt her pain. Yeah. And that I had caused it. And the sadness of that, like, I think that's the, I think I, I know that feeling and I can, and that's why I, I, I can, I see the, the difficulty in allowing ourselves to go there. Yeah. But there's also like, when I think about like, what do I actually want? It's connection. Yeah. What do I actually want? It's to feel like the other person is heard, can see me. Like I want to feel that. Mm -hmm. And when I think about that fork in the road, like will my ego get me there or will just surrendering to this feeling, mm -hmm. to this pain, help me get there. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like the surrender has always been the path to creating more intimacy, the yeah. surrendering of the, of the wall. Even if I look messy or if I don't have it all figured out, like the surrender is what leads to the love. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our, our medical practice, uh, we work with optimizing people, uh, trying to help create that, that opportunity to have the most optimized life, the most possibility for a life of excellence and we we had five categories of of things that that we found over the past 25 years the most successful people in the practice had achieved these five things and it doesn't matter i mean we have we have billionaires in the practice and we have you know military personnel i mean it's just a full spectrum of it and what I realized is all of them 
were lacking in at least one area. Um, you know, the billionaire that just wanted to have love, mm. have a relationship that no matter how much money he had, he couldn't get to that point. Um, but he had a deficiency mindset of it. And that's the another area is mindset. You know, if you have deficiency mindsets, you're not going to move forward in in this evolution of consciousness. The, you know, Maslow had the, you know, safety, food, housing, and, you know, the categories kept going up, but there are later stages of that that people can get stuck in. So like the person whose family is starving, their sole focus in the course of a day is going to be finding food. That's it. They're not going to be able to look at anything else. And so that's their focus. They're not going to go out and learn a musical instrument or, you know, become a painter or, you know, experience life in any other way. They're just after food. What people don't realize is even in those higher stages, there are things like financial security. And I've seen people that were worth half a billion dollars that felt unsecure in their financial status. They're like, you know, if something happens though, you know, I'll lose all this money. And so I've got to save all this for, for all these things. But that's their focus. They're stuck in trying to create wealth and accumulate. We have people that need community connection and they don't have it. They, we have a need to be, to have the feeling that we're important to a community, that we're valued. And a lot of people don't know how to go about that. And if they don't have that, even if they don't realize it, they're gonna be focused on how they can achieve that. Um, you know, the love is, is a big one. The, the body's a big one too. You know, yeah. if you don't have the body, that will respond to the demands of the mind or the consciousness that wants to do something. You still gotta have the body in, in a shape that can do it. How do you shift people from a deficiency mindset? What is the opposite of a deficiency mindset and how do you shift them into that so that it permeates all the categories? Yeah, to, just to help them understand the abundance of everything that they have. You know, one of the the best things to do, I mean, like Mike and I talked about it during COVID and we were just like, um, you know, what would we need to be happy? I mean, what would we require? And we were like, you know, we've got each other. As long as we're together, you know, we could be living in a tent down by the river, but we would have each other still. And I wouldn't have a problem if, you know, something drastic happens and I have to go work as a grocery store clerk. You know, I'm not saying grocery store clerks are, are bad, but it'd be a big difference for me going from being a physician to that. Yeah. I wouldn't have a problem with it though. If that's what was needed to, to at least have the financial means to feed myself and my family, no problem. You know, it's just a matter of really understanding what's the worst case scenario for you and how bad is that? Because generally we're not going to experience the worst case scenario, but if you're okay with the worst case scenario, then why you worry about? That was one of the, I remembered a friend of mine actually guided me into a meditation around like, like experiencing my deepest fears. Like when I actually allow myself to feel, cause I don't even think that I actually had this realization for myself. I don't think I'm afraid of failure. Mm -hmm. I think I had a, a fear of being seen failing, 
But if you go a layer underneath that, it wasn't even the fear of being seen failing. It was me feeling the feelings <laughs> exactly. that are associated with being seen failing. Yeah. And so for me, the practice became how deeply can I feel yeah. all the things I am most afraid of feeling. Mm -hmm. And that feels like liberation. Yeah. And, you know, that's the term they're starting to use now instead of enlightenment. And people are referring to, oh, I've been liberated. Um, I just started hearing that in the community more recently, and it really resonates well. I like it. Do you know my new company's name is Liberate? I did not. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Didn't plan that. Didn't ah. plan that. That's that's just how it's. Yeah. It, and for that reason, I've always had a. Even with the word healing, I've just sometimes had a problem with that yeah, because that implies that you're broken. Right. Liberated gives you more agency to recognize mm -hmm. that. You were just stuck. Yeah. Nobody's broken. I mean, there's some disharmony in the system. And you need to bring it back into wholeness. And that's the simple way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, at this stage in your life, like, what inspires you to keep growing? I just thrive on it. I mean, you know, I, I have this insatiable quest of knowledge and and knowing and learning. Uh, I want to experience new states of ecstasis. I mean, you know, in, in Buddhism, you don't want to have any wants and needs necessarily, but you know, in reality, I, I do, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. It's not a, um, it's not something I look at and say, oh, I shouldn't have that, it's bad. No, it's okay, it's my experience. Mm. <laughs> I just love you so much. Like I, I, I reflect back on like when we first met almost what, three or four years ago and yeah. just where I was at and where you were at. <laughs> yeah, we were a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just feeling how far we've both come and, and just getting to appreciate the journey with yeah. you. It's been really, really beautiful. Yeah, the growth has been amazing to watch. Yeah. And I just feel like we're just getting started at the same time. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've, <laughs> we're at the tip of the iceberg right now. So what's most alive for you right now? And what are you most excited about creating in the world? And, and is there anything on your horizon that, that I can share with, with my audience that's present and alive for you? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, my career has been, you know, I went from being a general vascular surgeon to becoming a, a, an optimization physician. You know, that's what I was about. And now I'm into age rejuvenation because I want to keep myself as youthful as possible until I die so that I can experience life throughout my, my timeline here. Um, but in the process, we developed a genetics company. We've got a supplement company. Uh, we've got an education company. And... Uh, I love this stuff, but the passion isn't there for it. I mean, the real passion is like around our consciousness collective, the, the yeah. Arate collective. Um, that's our real, I mean, I mean we, we call it our opus. This is the thing that we've done everything in our lifetime to get there. I mean, uh, Micra, my wife, she spent 30 years in the military. She retired as a colonel and uh, was involved in human performance. So she worked with really special characters that, that really were exceptional beings. So it's kind of helped guide us in that as well. And, you know, 
the other thing is relationships. I mean, relationships is a big thing. People have been encouraging us to develop a conscious relationship course. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just, I never felt like I had the uh, skills to do that. And Dan, <laughs> I'm just going to. And, and that's, that's a shadow that I need to resolve um, because I, I love, we work with couples now already individually. Um, and I love watching the changes. I mean, these people that were on the verge of divorces had paperwork filed and all of a sudden they're in love like teenagers again. Um, we, we complicate love so much mm. and it's so simple. What and makes it so simple? You just don't have to do anything. That's the key. I mean, we work to try to make it something instead of letting it be something and watching these couples reconnect with that love that they initially had is so special to see because it's there it's just been layered on by years of, of events that we attach meaning to. Yeah. I, I mean, you and micro have been like just the most important humans <laughs> to enter my life just because you, you two are the first to really show me what love can be mm -hmm. and like the depth of love. And but you have to be careful with that too, though, because um, like we were talking about in the retreat this weekend, a lot of people will put our relationship on a pedestal and they're like, that's the kind of relationship I want. You know, our, I mean, it is a special relationship. I mean, we wake up at 4 a.m. every day and we spend four to five hours in bed together, uh, reading to each other, massaging each other, making love every single day. And then we come to work together. And then we come home and we make dinner together and then yeah. we go to bed together and we like wrap ourselves around each other when we sleep. I mean, we are like pretzels. Um, and people are like, oh my God, I would love to have that. And it's not, it's not for everybody. I mean, it works for us because it's what we both need and want. Well, what, what I, I think what I'm referring to is I think the way that even my needs, like, I don't know if I would want that, right? right? But like, mm -hmm. but what I do appreciate is the the depth of of devotion that you guys have to mm -hmm. the process of growing together yeah like i think that to me is just so inspiring mm -hmm. like i i can feel that in both of you like i can feel micro in her processes and like the depth of devotion you have to that process mm -hmm. and then i can feel you in your process and the depth of devotion she has to your process and mm -hmm. there's this beautiful weaving of growth and, and I think both of you were the first to really show me that like outside of one person and another person, there's like an energy of a union. Yeah. And the union has energy. And that was an eye-opening concept for me because mm -hmm. I was never really modeled that. And so for me to even know that like that union is possible mm -hmm. um, was so important for me at that stage in my journey. And I I, I truly can't thank you or micro enough for how much you've you've inspired me you've helped me you've uh you've encouraged me um supported me i just feel so freaking lucky <laughs> that you. i get to have both of you in my life and i and i actually have been wanting just some i'm we were supposed to interview everyone listening we we're supposed to interview micro and dan but i just got time with dan today and this has actually <laughs> turned out to be so amazing mm -hmm. Because I feel like we haven't had a drop-in like this in a mm, while. We haven't. And 
I just feel so, I just feel nourished and lucky, bro. So thank you for- Well, thank for, you. That makes my day. Yeah, for just <laughs> gifting me the the privilege of getting some time with you in this mm -hmm. way. Dan, I got one last question for you. Okay. So in the midst of everything you're doing, everywhere you've been and everywhere you're going, how do you stay grounded? But I want to add another layer to that, which mm -hmm. is how do you stay grounded? And what is one piece of advice you have for somebody who may be trying to become grounded? Hmm. Interesting question. Well, fortunately for me, Micra helps me stay grounded. Um, she used to be this little ethereal fairy that was never grounded and I was the grounding for her. And now, now I'm, I've become more ungrounded than her. So she's like my anchor for that. I mean, the, our relationship is that mutual grounding of each other and and we realize, I mean, we look at it and we say, you know, this is, these are some things that, that are required in this relative reality in order to really have relationships with people and have relationships with life in general. Um, and when you forget that, that's where things kind of, kind of go awry. Mm. Mm -hmm. Dan, I love you. Thanks again for being here. Love you, man. I love you lots. Everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your new friend, Dan. And from <laughs> us, stay grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Stay Grounded. No matter where you're from or what you're going through, I hope it helps you remember just how incredible you are and have always been. If you're on a path of emotional healing or self-discovery, and would like to learn how Liberate can support your journey, head to www.rajana.com forward slash liberate. That is L-I-B-E-R-8 to learn more about our current group programs and one-on-one -on -one offerings. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.